Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast, Mr. Kaiser. It's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Uh, ca- catch me up. It's been a what? It's been it's been a year. I've learned a lot about the Kennedy assassination since the last time you were on. Please, I'm hoping. Well, uh, I've been very busy with other things, and uh, I've, I've found that with age, my long term memory is still fine. My day to day memory is fine. My my medium term memory is really uh, the biggest problem. The last ten or fifteen years are basically a blur. Uh, I, I don't have a specific recollection of our earlier conversation, although I know there was one. But um, there is there are a couple of new things that have come out in the last year, although one of them, from my point of view, was a dead end. Uh, a newspaper man in Tampa uh, made contact with two stepchildren of Lauren Hall, who, in my opinion, was a key figure in all this, uh, whether or not he was actually involved in the assassination himself. I'm convinced that he knew Oswald and and was involved in related plots. And they told some interesting stories, um, including they claimed that uh, their stepfather at one point showed them another Manlisher Carcano rifle and pointed out that this was the kind of rifle Oswald used, although he didn't explain what the significance of the second rifle was. Now, I wrote the newsman who wrote the article, and uh, I suggested to him that he suggest to his sources that they read The Road to Dallas, my book, which is right here, uh, because there's a lot about, there's more about Lauren Hall in that book than you'll find anywhere else, and they would be interested in it uh, as well. Uh, but I never heard back from him. Um, he also found an actual son of Lauren Hall's, uh, but that guy didn't want to talk to him at all. He said, I know what this is about and I'm not going to talk to you. And and that was that. You know, they got some secrets somewhere. Yes, but but that's our real hope at this point, our only real hope of getting something from the younger generation, which is how I made, well, I didn't make it, but I, I used it. That's how we got one of the biggest breakthroughs that allowed me to be so definite in my book. Uh, namely from Ed Martino, the son of John Martino, uh, a, a Trafficante associate who told two people that he was involved in the conspiracy to kill the president and who, uh, Ed Martino explained, had essentially told his family a couple of weeks before it happened, uh, if he goes to Dallas, they're going to kill him. So that's our best chance of finding out anything more at this point. Of course, that kind of information is secondhand. It's old. Um, it, it tends to be hit or miss, although not in the case of Ed Martino, I don't think, who's almost exactly my age. Um, but that that probably is the best hope at this point. Now, did you respect the HSCA's investigations or conclusions on some things when it came to the mob-related activities or things that should have been investigated by the Warren Commission? Because like they, they talked about uh, Jimmy Hoffa had the capability and motive to do so. They talked about Santos Tropicante had the capability to do so and Carlos Marcello, which I think is really important because like that shows obvious flaws in the Warren Commission's investigation, which honestly, it was just about pinning Oswald. Well, yes, uh, that goes back for me to 1983, when I was commissioned to by the Washington Post to write a 20th anniversary uh, piece on what we know about the assassination today. And so that was only four years after the HSCA report. I was familiar with the broad lines of the report, but I made uh, contact 
with G. Robert Blakey, and this was the beginning of a long friendship, and uh, who had been the chief counsel of the HSCA, and who also happened to be an authority on organized crime. And we had a number of long conversations on the phone in 1983 while I was writing that piece, and I've been in touch with him off and on ever since. Uh, then, uh, 10 or 15, year, 15 years later, roughly, uh, after the passage of the JFK Records Act, uh, and when probably a million pages, certainly hundreds of thousands of pages of FBI documents on the mob were released, well, it became my ambition to get a look at those myself. And eventually I and some research assistants did get a very sustained look and was able to fill in a lot of the blanks. It's interesting, the HSCA um, was under tremendous time pressure, which I was not. Um, they had a two-year appropriation, but they wasted a good chunk of the first year because they had the wrong chief counsel. And then, uh, and, and I've said this before, I don't think they got as close to the truth as they might have, because uh, while Blakey, the chief counsel, was very tuned into the organized crime angle, Guyton Fonzi, a journalist who was working for them and who was investigating the Florida angle, the Cuban angle, he got more hung up on whether there was CIA involvement. And, and he had actually talked to the Martino family, I think. And they had information about Martino, but because Fonzi was more interested in a different angle, they didn't go as far with that as they might have, uh, which was sad. So the report simply made a very general accusation against various organized crime figures. And um, I was able to go much further than that and get quite specific. Can I ask what your thoughts are on Burt Griffith? Griffin? He always kind of surprised or shocked me because he's the one that included Jack Ruby's phone call conversations, if I'm not mistaken, into the HSCA report. But then he also believes that it was just Oswald lone nut scenario. I was like, but he investigated Jack Ruby specifically. I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> and I, I mean, I really don't have anything to say about it, uh, but I, I don't like to get hung up on why other researchers thought this or that or the other thing, which is kind of a rabbit hole. Well, how much did you have to know about the Cold War to come with your conclusions that the, there was mob involvement in the Kennedy assassination? I found that learning more about the times helps me understand more about the political, I guess. Well, what the Cold War aspect of it has to do with Cuba. And um, the ascension of Castro to power was a tremendous blow to the prestige of the American government. Uh, within a year, uh, the American government was, continued, was committed to overthrowing him under Eisenhower. Meanwhile, uh, Havana had been literally the Las Vegas of the East uh, for some time uh, with a lot of casinos. And if you wanted to, you know, if you were a well-to-do Northeasterner wanted to spend a weekend gambling, perhaps paying for sex, et cetera, et cetera, getting some sun during the winter, uh, you took a quick flight to Havana and uh, the tremendous source of income for the mob, obviously. And, and they were they had been planning to expand it. In fact, there's a book about that, I think by a Cuban that I looked at at one point. And uh, they lost all of that. 
And then uh, when the CIA set up the Castro assassination plot, uh, they, they went to Robert Mayhew, former FBI agent working privately now, uh, for help in recruiting somebody who did it. And he went to Johnny Roselli, who was a friend of mine. And Roselli went to Sam Giancana, the mob boss in uh, Chicago, and Senator Traficante, the mob boss in North Florida, who also was maybe the single biggest figure in the Havana casino operation, although I'm not sure about that. And they did try to execute that plan uh, and continued to try to do so for the whole of the Kennedy administration. Although at a certain point, uh, the CIA in 1962 told Kennedy that they had dropped that plan, but they hadn't, and it was going on. You believe Santos Traficante was actually trying to assassinate Castro? I mean, I, we obviously see the documents, but they never delivered the pills, and there was plenty of opportunities they could have got someone to kill or shoot Castro, one of his closest things, but it seems like every plan failed. Every plan did fail, but they kept trying. And, and the last infiltration that I know of was in early 1963, actually. And the... Um, that one was concealed successfully from the inspector general of the CIA uh, when, when he looked into this in 1967, which is another interesting story, and from the church committee. But, but that happened, and, and several people were uh, caught on a rooftop of a Havana hotel when they were preparing to assassinate Fidel. Actually, uh, there's another very intrepid researcher. He's a lawyer named Jerry Shinley. He's never written anything, and I don't think he plans to, but th there are a number of people like that out there uh, who don't have writing ambitions, but they're ferocious about going through the archives. And he's found evidence that it was going on several years after that, and even as late as 1965, and, and that was still involved in some kind of plot to kill Fidel. Yeah. Did you, now, was the organized crime, like the them working with the CIA, was that a a shocker for you when you found out about it? Was it something you were already privy to, to based on other maybe insights into what the mob was involved in? Well, that leaked in the mid seventies. And that certainly was a surprise. Actually it leaked before that, uh, that was broken. And again, this is detailed in the last chapter of my book in 1967 by Drew Pearson and Jack Anderson, uh, two muckraking Washington columnists. Uh, nobody remembers Drew Pearson anymore, although he was the more important one. Jack Anderson, a few older people remember, but he's been dead for 10 years or so now also. Uh, but um, actually, th that's a fascinating story because uh, this came through a lawyer named Edward Mo Ed Morgan, a, a major Washington lawyer, who was representing Johnny Roselli, who had been in the plot in a deportation case, and also Robert Mayhew uh, on some other matter, uh, and uh, also he was representing Jimmy Hoffa, in Hoffa's last attempt to stay out of jail, he was about to go to jail. Yeah, I think I know about and this. And from Mayhew and Roselli, Morgan got, well, we don't, know, we don't know who changed the story. He got a garbled account of the Andy Castro plot. 
And he went to Pearson and gave him a story that, first of all, that Robert Kennedy was the man behind the plot, which was not true, and that the plot had misfired and the plotters had been turned around and were responsible for the assassination of JFK. And in my, and, and Pearson uh, actually, uh, oh yeah, Morgan also went to the FBI with him as well as Pearson. And then Pearson went to President Johnson, whom he knew quite well, and also to Chief Justice Warren in another conversation and told them this story. Um, now, uh, the point of this, I think, was to put pressure on Robert Kennedy by trying to link him to this nefarious stuff and, and to try to get the government to back down on sending Hoffa to jail with the implied threat that if they did, all this was going to come out. And Pearson and Anderson printed this story in 1967, but um, they had an odd relationship with the rest of the big time journalistic profession uh, who would ignore a lot of what they said, even though much of it has turned out to be true. Not all of it by any means. I mean, they were wild swingers, but a lot of it was. So publicly, that didn't go anywhere at that time. What is very interesting uh, is um, that uh, President Johnson, apparently, after he heard about this, and, and that the CIA had been behind this plot, which is part of the story, uh, called up Richard Helms, the director of the CIA, and said, uh, what the hell is all this about? And that was why Richard Helms went to the inspector general of the CIA and told him to look into it and write a thorough report. And the inspector general's office of the CIA was quite remarkable. Uh, I mean, they didn't take any prisoners. They didn't pull any punches. When they were looking into a problem, they found out the truth. And, and they had already written a devastating report about the Bay of Pigs and what went wrong there. And they wrote a pretty accurate, although, as I eventually discovered, not entirely complete, report on the Castro assassination plots. And uh, Helms apparently briefed LBJ on that report. And LBJ became convinced, more or less, that uh, the assassination of Kennedy was retaliation for those plots. Yeah. So I know we, Johnson's made statements it, about... The, um, I know Johnson's yeah. made statements about Castro and the Cubans being involved in it, and it wasn't Oswald, but he said it like off to the side, not um, recorded or anything that we can use. He said it. Well, actually, he didn't say Oswald was not involved. I don't think he said that. I think he said, I think he thought Oswald was part of the uh, Cubans conspiracy. He did say it when Walter Cronkite interviewed him in his first year out of office. Uh, but then he told Cronkite to cut it, and he did cut it. Um, it, it, well, I don't know that what he said, I don't think what he said to Cronkite was that specific. He said he thought there was a conspiracy or that there was foreign involvement, something to that effect. Uh, but then he asked Cronkite to cut it. Yeah. He said more specific things privately to a newsman and probably to a couple of other people. Now, who do you think was some of the high people on the total totem pole besides Santos Traficante? Do you believe like Jimmy Hoffa's involvement in there? I know I've learned a little bit about Jimmy Hoffa only from connections with Richard Nixon, um, where there were some strange little lines that go there, which I think a lot of people don't know about. 
Yeah. Uh, well, Carlos Marcello, I think, is is right up there with Traficante in terms of uh, responsibility. Uh, and and Marcello, of all those guys, was in the most desperate situation because he was indicted in 1963 and coming to trial in the fall on charges of submitting false information to the government. And uh, they were counting on convicting him on this to finally deport him from the country as they had been trying to do for decades and continued to try to do for decades, but were never successful. Um, in fact, uh, Marcello was acquitted, perhaps possibly with the help of bribing a juror or two, uh, on November 22nd. Um, the acquittal was announced on the same day the president was assassinated. So he, he certainly was very much in it. Uh, Frank Regano, who was an attorney for Traficante uh, and also for Hoffa, uh, told the story uh, in his book, Mob Lawyer, that um, in the summer of 1963, I think, late spring or summer, he took a message from Hoffa to Traficante and Marcello that it was time to put out the contract on the president. And as he said, when he conveyed this message, he expected them both to burst out laughing, but that wasn't what happened at all. Uh, Traficante and Marcello just gave each, of the, each other a long look, and, and that was all there was to it. Now, Hoffa was also desperate. Robert Kennedy was moving heaven and earth to get him into prison, as he succeeded in doing eventually. Uh, uh, Bob Blakey, uh, when when this first broke, uh, ma made an interesting comment. Um, he said, Hoffa could not tell Marcello and Traficante what to do. If anything, it was the other way around. Um, but uh, again, Hoffa had apparently discussed assassinating Robert Kennedy. Uh, we also have evidence that um, that came up in the presence of Carlos Marcello, uh, and that uh, at some at one point somebody explained why that was a bad idea, namely that if they killed Bobby, the president would send the Marines after them, but if they killed Jack, uh, Bobby would no longer be Attorney General, and um, the heat would be off to a certain extent, which again is pretty much what happened. Uh, the the all-out effort against organized crime uh, really was cut way back uh, after Kennedy was killed. Do you know why during the Kennedy and Nixon, that election, do you know why Sam, it, Sam G. and Connor Carlos Marcello that did $25,000 towards Kennedy's campaign? Well, yes. And again, I found a wiretap of the conversation. Uh, it's not a verbatim wiretap, it's in summary, but it's quite detailed. Between Giancana in Chicago and Johnny Roselli, uh, who was a Giancana man, but who lived in Los Angeles in, I think it's September 1962, somewhere like that. And Giancana is being harassed by the FBI. Robert Kennedy is going after him every way he should. And, and he's furious. And it turns out the reason he's furious is that he had made a contribution. I can't at this moment vouch for the $25,000 figure, 
but he had made a contribution to the campaign through Frank Sinatra. And, and what the conversation is about is that apparently he had told Roselli to go to Sinatra and say, uh, you got to get this guy off my back. I gave the money, et cetera. Now, my very strong hunch is that Sinatra played it too cute. Uh, Sinatra was a significant figure and probably fundraiser in the 1960 campaign. I suspect that he took the money to John Connor, that he gave it to Robert Kennedy or Steve Smith, the president's brother-in-law who was running the campaign finances, and he didn't tell them who it was from. Um, so, uh, in, in fact, uh, John Connor hadn't bought the protection that he thought he had, but he is absolutely furious about that. On the other hand, the story that's become very popular that Giancana had actually been in a position to, and actually did, help swing the election in Illinois to Kennedy is without foundation. And, and in fact, uh, this was proven 40 years ago by an excellent book by a political scientist called Courthouse Over White House. Uh, the mob did not swing, well, no, the, the the Chicago machine, with or without the mob, did not actually steal Illinois for Kennedy in 1960. They did steal the election for the Democratic candidate for state's attorney, it appears, but they didn't care that much about the presidential election. And it appears that Kennedy did win that one fair and square. Now, what was one of the um, plots that they had against Kennedy or delivery of weapons? Um, I, I, like I said, I've light touched against this part Castro, of the against Castro. Against Castro, yeah. Well, there were there were there were many of them. I knew many again, of the plots, but there was a trip. I forgot. I don't remember who the person's name. It's not Lauren Hall, I don't think. But they talked about a Leon that was with them, like it's supposed to be a Lee Harvey Oswald. I might be mistaken. No, in no, that. that that was that's the Odeo incident. Yeah. Uh, well, well, the interesting case, which I detailed in my book, and nobody else has in this kind of detail, based on a CIA file that I found. Um was what was called the Biopoly raid. And Eddie Bio was just a run-of-the-mill Cuban exile who helped organize this, I guess. William Pauly is a very interesting figure. He was a big American transportation magnet. I believe he'd owned bus lines in Cuba. He was personally friendly with President Eisenhower. And in fact, I found very good evidence that he was the man who gave Eisenhower the idea that Castro ought to be assassinated. And that Ike then passed that on to Alan Dulles at the CIA and they got that going. And uh, Pauly was very anti-Kennedy, he's very hostile about the Cuban Missile Crisis and he knew John Martino. Um, and he organized, well, well, it's very complicated. They picked up a story, which was not true. This is the spring of 1963. And the gist of the story was that the Soviets had tricked Kennedy, that they still had people in Cuba, that they were still hiding missiles in Cuba, and that there were people in Cuba who they could bring out who would testify to this. And they got the CIA to help them mount an operation to do that using Pauly's boat. 
and they brought along with them a Life magazine reporter named Dick Billings, who I interviewed at great length about this uh, back uh, around 2000 or so. Um, and no, no, it was later than that, sometime in the OOS. Anyway, uh, and John Martino was organizing it too. Now it turns out, and, and we know this from Lauren Hall, who was involved in the planning, although he didn't go on the raid, fortunately for him, as it turned out. The whole story was a crock. And what this really was, uh, was another attempt to get an assassination squad into Cuba to kill Castro. And they were carrying something like a, 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 a timed car bomb or something like that, that they were going to use. Mart Martino was a technical kind of guy. Um, he made his living for Traficante partly by rigging roulette wheels and things like that. And, and he had had something to do with putting this together. Now, as Billings told me, uh, they got pretty close to Cuba. They put all the men and the equipment in a small boat. And uh, Billings um, said he, he, he noticed as the boat got into the water, boy, that boat is riding awfully low there. Uh, and they set off for Cuba. Again, the official story is they're going to land. They're going to pick up these guys who are going to tell the story of the Russian technicians and the missiles and come back. But 24 hours later, they weren't back. Billings told me Martino didn't appear to be particularly upset by this, partly because he knew they weren't going to be coming back anyway. They're going to be going after Castro. Uh, so they just went home. Now, according to Cuban authorities, who I contacted directly, the boat must have sunk because they say it never landed. Um, but, but this was a very interesting operation uh, because of who was involved in it. And Lauren Hall, actually, that's right. Lauren Hall said it was backed by Giacana and Traficante. And, and he, had, he had met Traficante in Cuba when they were both in a detention center in 1959. And he saw him again in connection with planning the bio polyride, and I think John Connor as well. Um, now, later in September, no, actually in the first, in October 3rd, 1963, uh, it turns out Lauren Hall and another man showed up at the apartment of a Cuban refugee named Sylvia Odio in Dallas with Lee Harvey Oswald in tow, who they called Leon. And she belonged to a relatively left-wing anti-Castro group called Hure, uh, which in 1963, the CIA was working with to plan a new invasion of Cuba. And they were setting up a training base in Latin America. It, it was one of two favorite CIA groups. Lauren Hall, on the other hand, was associated with right-wing Cubans. And um, they were grilling her basically about Jure and about what Jure was doing. And then a day or two later, he called her and he started talking about the American, as he put it, that is Oswald. And he said, this is the kind of guy who would shoot Castro if we could get him in Cuba. And he also referred to Oswald uh, having said uh, at some point 
uh, you Cubans should have shot Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs. And uh, she wasn't interested. But uh, this is key to what I concluded, uh, namely that Oswald, when he went to Mexico City, and, and actually October 3rd, that was the day he got back from Mexico City, having tried and failed to get into Cuba. And I'm convinced that he was trying to get into Cuba uh, so that he could take a shot at Castro with some help from somebody there, presumably. And uh, so that hadn't worked. So now uh, Lauren Hall was trying something else. And we use Jorge's connections to get him to Cuba. And that didn't work either. So at some point, somebody decided perhaps he should shoot Kennedy instead. And he did. Can I ask, when do you think the mob contacted Lee Harvey Oswald for the first time? Well, Lee Harvey Oswald's family, his mother, and his uncle had long-standing mob connections. So that's a very tricky question. Um, but in terms of how Martino actually did it, what the link between Martino and Oswald was, I don't know. I do know, okay, Martino had worked in Havana casinos he had gone to Havana with his son, Ed, who was 13 at the time, in 1959. He got arrested and he spent three years in Castro's prison. And somehow he got out in 1962. And that's a fascinating question because we, we don't really know why Castro let him go. But he did. And he came back. And he fell in with some right-wing elements also. And he wrote a book called I Was Castro's Prisoner, which came out in the summer of 63. And he did a book tour, mostly in the Sun Belt. And he was in Dallas on the book tour in early October of 63. And then, and, and this is something the HSA, HSCA found out when they went and, and interviewed his widow. Martino died in 1975. He went back to Dallas later in October for reasons unknown. We don't know what that trip was about, but he went. But that's all I know. Can I ask more about Traficante, Lauren Hall, and all of them being locked up in Castro's prison? When did that happen? What pissed off Castro? Or how did they get caught? And also, maybe we can tie in Lewis McWillie as well, too. Because I, I do believe that Jack Ruby visited Traficante. Um, a lot of people don't. But I don't I don't I see evidence to support it. I think that the Warren Commission used statements from like some, some just people that were irrelevant to the case when they just completely tossed out Lewis's um, statement about being there, seeing him there and also another British investigative journalist. Yeah, well, that I'm glad you brought that up because I got into a violent argument with that when the Road to Dallas came out and it, it was a revealing argument. OK, Hall. I can't remember exactly why Hall said he was in Cuba. I, I mean, he was he was trying to hook up with the new regime somehow. I don't know, but he got picked up and put in detention. Traficante presumably was picked up because of who he was and because he owned the casino. And he eventually managed to get himself out. Maybe some money changed hands there. Now, and also there was this British journalist named John Wilson Hudson. And the day, a day or two after 
Ruby shot Oswald and became known all over the world. Wilson Hudson walked into the American embassy in London and talked to the CIA, to a CIA man there and said, I was in this detention center uh, in, um, in Havana in September 1963. And there was an American gangster there named Luis Santos, which was an alias Traficante was using. And he was visited by Jack Ruby. Now, people like the late John McAdams uh, argued that we could disregard what Wilson Hudson said because one person, I believe, uh, eventually told authorities that Wilson Hudson was mentally unstable. And that was all McAdams needed to throw out that story. The trouble with that is that he would have had to have been medically unstable, but also clairvoyant, because we know from other indisputable sources that Ruby was in Cuba and in Havana at that time. So it would have been a complete coincidence that Wilson Hudson happened to make a false accusation involving a moment when Jack Ruby was in fact in Cuba. Uh, and um, well, if you want to believe that, fine, but I don't. And there wasn't any other way that Wilson Hudson could have known that Ruby had been in Cuba on the 24th or 25th of November. Um, so uh, that is what that is about. And McWilly, Ruby was in touch with McWilly in connection with that trip. Yes, I believe that's true. McWilly uh, was a mob figure in Las Vegas who Ruby knew. Uh, there's probably more about the book that I don't exactly remember, but uh, that's about it. Yeah. And, and at one point, I mean, Ruby sent McWilly a gun, I believe, that he wanted. I don't know what that was about. Ruby was always trying to curry favor with anybody who could possibly help him. Do you believe he was a low-level mob guy like everyone talks about, or do you believe he was Yeah, Jack Ruby? No, I don't think he was actually a mob guy, but he had worked, and his family had worked, in mob-controlled businesses all his life. And Ruby, okay, he ran the Carousel Club, a sort of strip club, and his strippers belonged to a union called the American Guild of Variety Artists. And he talked a lot all through 1963 about how he was having a lot of trouble with the union. Now, coincidentally, a congressional committee, I believe it was in that same year, did an investigation of the American Guild for Variety Arts, or AGVA, that was, was known. And they found that it was a mob-controlled union. And the mob used their control of the union to extort money from the clubs. In other words, you pay us X a month or else your strippers won't work. And evidently, what Jack really meant when he said he was having union trouble was that he was behind on his payments to whoever the critical mob figures were in this case. And, and he was, we have his phone records. He was calling everybody he knew who could help him. And that included mob figures in Chicago in touch with Giancana in New Orleans in touch with Marcello in Florida in touch with Traficante, 
all three. Uh, I believe I documented that pretty clearly. So he was in that orbit. And, and a lot of his, several of his brothers, I think, had been involved in the laundry business. And the laundry business is also, uh, or was heavily mob dominated uh, at that time. Did you, this This is, might be an aside question, but did you look at Ruby and the Western Union stuff? A lot of it didn't really make sense because they, it was um, Karen Carlin, I think her name is, a stripper at uh, Jack Ruby's. He, he sent the money to her just before he went and shot Osmond. Me. Yeah. And if you look at her, the questions that were being asked, they don't make sense. Like she demanded that she needed this money now. And the guy asked, was your landlord pressuring you for rent? And she was like, no. And then they just go on to the next question. I was like, well, then why was she demanding the money right then where they had to walk all the way to? And that was the night when Ruby went to Western Union and transferred that money, then just got this spur of indignation to go shoot Oswald, who killed the president. Well, no, I think it was during the day. I, I think he sent the wire just a few minutes before he shot Oswald. Uh, all I can say is, again, this is one of the weakest arguments you get in these cases is, it wouldn't make sense for so-and-so to behave that way at that moment, okay? But we don't know that. I mean, most of us have not committed an act which is going to end our life as we know it. And we don't know how would we, we would behave in the hour before committing that act. And, and we might, in fact, do some things that seem very unrelated just to distract ourselves or whatever. So... To me, that argument, it's a way, it actually, it's kind of a denial mechanism. I mean, on the one hand, you're, you're about to lose your freedom for the rest of your life. But if you take the minute to send the wire, you're sort of pretending that, no, that's not going to happen. Um, so Yeah, but he left $3,000 in his car and one of his dogs as well, too. Yes, he did. That's right. Well, well he, he always had a lot of cash with him because that's how he ran the club. I mean, he did everything he could. If he was a dog lover, why would you leave your dog in the car and go do that knowing you're going to get locked up? Oh, well, I, I don't think that was quite as much of a taboo about leaving dogs in cars as it is now, uh, back in 1963. <laughs> That's a good answer. That's a really good answer. Um, well, I was, there. I was there, remember? I think we probably left our dog in the car a few times. Yeah. I, I have to ask about dallas police and jack ruby obviously i've i've seen uh affidavit in the dallas police archives um that someone did see a man walk up the ramp um to get in and he thought someone was going to stop him but nobody stopped him so it's obviously the connections with dallas police is how he got in there yeah i mean he was quoted as saying uh to a friend the way to run a club is to get in good with the police and he hung out with the police, he did favors of the police, he would bring sandwiches to the police. And that's how he was floating around the police station on Friday or Saturday night, or maybe both. I can't remember exactly, but it's all in the book. Uh, and nobody bothered him. Now, in fact, he did try to go into the room where Oswald was being interrogated once. And, and some cops said, no, Jack, you can't go in there. Uh, but that was a very um, interesting episode. And also, and we have this on film, he famously corrected the Dallas policeman who was speaking to the press and, and who associated Oswald with the wrong Cuban group. Um, he said he was... The fair play for Cuba committee. 
free the, the cops and the free Cuba committee and Jackson, no, that's the fair play for Cuba committee, which was a communist front. It's even crazier because he's dressed up like a reporter with glasses and all. And it's just That's like right. he really That's played right. the part. Um, do you believe Seth Kanner's statement about seeing Jack Ruby at Parkland Hospital? Yes, absolutely. I do too. I don't see any reason to disbelieve it. And Seth Kanner was a reporter, respected reporter, and that's the kind of memory that they are trained to have. Yep. I think they chose Karen Carlin's statement over Seth Cantor's. Oh, okay. Which is why I was mentioning the Western Union thing, because apparently at the time they were, they were addressing that call. She said Ruby was at the Carousel Club, so he couldn't have been at Parkland. But it's just to me, I think it has more weight because I don't know if you've seen recently a document um, about Jack Ruby talking about going to see the fireworks and had any thoughts on that. He, he made a statement. No, I, I don't think I'm familiar with that. There's the other amazing story. Uh, I've forgotten the name now. I could look it up. It's the stripper who had been his main gal all that summer. And um, on the morning of the 22nd, she was driving through Dallas and she got stopped for speeding or something. And she said the cops could, could we wrap this up quickly? I've really got to get out of town fast. <laughs> and... Uh, I must say, I thought that was an interesting coincidence, but we'll never know. Yeah, when, and and actually, and also, I mean, you know, the night before, the night of the twenty-first, he had dinner at the Egyptian Lounge, which was the steakhouse run by two of the leading mobsters in Dallas, the Campisi brothers. Can I can I ask what your suspicion is for Traficante being released? Do you believe that he would cut a deal with Castro? Well, I mean, it's just speculation, but it, yeah. yeah, something like that, or it was money or whatever. Yeah. And do you believe, like, with um, Sam Giancana's death, obviously, do, it had to be, do you think, like, did you go into it and look and see if it's probably someone close to him, or do you believe it was something else? Oh, my, my guess, and that's all it is, would be that it was Traficanti, and that Traficanti was afraid that. He was going to talk. I mean, Giancana was about to testify before the House Intelligence Committee. And uh, that's why, and, and you see Roselli, that story is in the book. R Roselli testified for that committee three times. And the third time, I think, was in the spring of 1976. Giancana was killed in the spring of 1975. And John Connor was killed about a month before Hoffa was killed. And Hoffa went missing. Yes, well, okay. I don't expect him to show up at my doorstep anytime soon. He's in Florida somewhere. Right. Uh, and and I wouldn't rule out the possibility that Trafagani had something to do with that, too, although there are plenty of other reasons for that. But anyway, um, and his last appearance in the spring of 76, there's an incredible exchange between Roselli and the committee council where the council is finally trying to get him to name Traficanti as a participant in the plot, which he had refused to do. He had named Giancana, but not Traficanti. And he asked him this, and, and 
in the record, uh, Roselli is clearly declining to answer or doesn't want to answer. And the committee council says, listen, if he was going to get knocked off over this, he would have been knocked off already. So you can answer that question. And Roselli says, okay, I just used him as an interpreter a couple of times. That's all, which I'm sure was a crock. And a month or two later in Miami, where he was living then, Roselli disappeared and then his body is found in an oil drop. So it looks to me as if Traficante was um, very worried about who might talk at that moment when so many things were breaking and took appropriate action. And then there's the exchange. Uh, well, when Lauren Hall testified before the House committee, uh, he said that he had gotten a call from Traficante or from somebody around Traficante. Yeah, I think it was from somebody around Traficante saying, you know, the boss is out of the country and he wants to know is it safe to come back? And, and he said, sure, don't worry about it. And then there's the conversation, which is on tape. And you can hear this in the, in the movie, Killing Oswald, excellent movie, which you can find on Vimeo. There's a long interview with me there. But the maker of that uh, movie got the tape of a phone call that Hall had, again, in the late 70s with the National Enquirer reporter. And it sounds like Hall's had a couple of drinks. He's very angry. His wife is in the background telling him to hang up. But at one point, he exclaims to the reporter, listen, there's only two people left around who know anything anymore, and that's me and Senator Traficante. We're the only two left alive, and I'm going to stay alive, so I'm not going to say shit. Well, that was an interesting statement to make. Now, out of all the people that have obviously made statements, I mean, you suspect Santos Traficante, but why do you think none of these were investigated um, properly? Do you think that was because there was this relationship that was existing between organized crime and the CIA? Apparently, nobody got the idea about them. And I asked this question to Bob Blakey, who was in the organized crime section of the Justice Department, and another lawyer, William Kennedy, who also was in that section. The question I asked was, did it occur to any of you at the time of the assassination that the mob might have been behind this? And Kennedy said no, and Blakey said, I'm not absolutely certain, but I couldn't tell you that it that it did. In other words, there might have been some, somebody say something, but he did not have a clear memory of it. And Kennedy agreed with me that it was a little odd in retrospect that they hadn't thought about it at all, but they hadn't. Um, so that's why um, there wasn't. Is there any questions left for you um, in the assassination? Obviously, having a final conclusion would be nice. Um, but I mean, is there anything like other areas that you felt like were dead ends or something that was just didn't have any weight to the argument? Or uh, Let me think about that. Um, that either means it's a good question. Well, there, or there are a lot. 
Yeah, there are there are big questions about whether well, first of all, there's a whole other angle we haven't talked about, which is very big in the book, about Oswald being some part of some right-wing disinformation effort to discredit the Fair Play for Cuba or possibly other organizations. And, and I feel there's enormous circumstantial evidence that that's what that was. Um, there is a fellow named Robert Morris who was a leading anti-communist activist. He had worked for the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee. Uh, and, and that committee was also very involved in the biopoly raid. Robert Morris lived in Dallas. Robert Morris talked to Lauren Hall three times on October 3rd, the day of the audio incident. I'm very curious about his role in a number of ways. He's been dead for 40 years or so. Um, that's another one. And, and the involvement of certain Cuban groups, the possible involvement of the DRE, which is the most militant Cuban group, the Student Revolutionary Directorate, Sure, uh, I, I've got a lot of questions ab about that. Did you look at Johnny Roselli's existing relationships with characters like um, William Harvey, uh, who worked for the CIA? Well, that's that's well documented that they certainly did have a relationship. Yes, even after. But the I do not. Agency. But but I definitely do not think the CIA was involved in the assassination. In fact, nope, this is nobody's not... saying that. Nobody's saying that. Nobody's saying that. Right. Just right. Well, no. A lot of people do say, and uh, the reason is that I think the record is quite clear that there was no major disagreement between Kennedy and the CIA in the fall of 1963 on policy towards Castro. Um, it, they, they both wanted to get rid of him, I think. And it's true that Ambassador William Atwood, who was at the UN, uh, and who was a dear friend of my family and of me personally, uh, was exploring at the UN the possibility of normalizing relations with Castro. And he had let the White House in on those talks. But the record is very clear uh, through a, a memo by McGeorge Bundy that the White House wasn't interested in pursuing that at that time. So um, that's something that's been blown way out of proportion. By certain people. Can I ask why you think that Traficante um, teamed up with the CIA to get rid of Castro? Do you think he cared? They they used the leverage in the documents of his casinos being shut down. Um, that obviously. Well, no, was... I think I think that's it, and and that he was hoping that they would be able to get back in if they could do that. Do you think Traficante was concerned about RFK's um, attack on the mob? Definitely, and 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 he was a target of it, and they were. Embarrassing him publicly uh, in the summer fall of 1963, and he apparently said to an associate, a Cuban named Jose Alamán, "This man Kennedy is trouble, and he's going to get what's coming to him." And and Alamán said, "Well, look, I, he's very popular. I think he's going to be reelected." Tropicana said, "You don't understand. It's going to be hit." I have to ask, um, I don't know if you followed the events of the assassination, but when it I mean, like the actual events, like the anniversaries that keep happening, um, the 60th is obviously coming up this November. Uh, so 
I, I don't I don't know if you're attending or not, but I mean, do you think that you're going to start getting some more answers on some documents and things of that sort? Obviously, if you think that the mob did it, you have all the answers you need. Um, but I'm just curious on there is still documents being withheld. It would be nice to be able to have access to those. Well, the problem is, OK. And I've tried to bring this to people's attention many times. And I've gotten nowhere. I don't think there are any smoking guns in the documents people were still arguing about. That is, the ones that were reviewed by the review board that have never been released, okay? The problem is, and this has happened to me twice, a researcher can discover the existence of documents that the committee never saw because they didn't know they existed, that have never been released, and there is no procedure in place to get something like that released under the JFK Records Act. So if a Cuban former Batista official murdered in 1967 named Eladio Del Valle, if you find he has subsequently been accused of being involved in the assassination, and you discover, as I did, that he has a CIA file, and in fact, you even have the number of the CIA file, and you go to the CIA, as I did, and say, hey, this is obviously a JFK record. How about it? They'll say, we don't release files like that, end of story, and you get nowhere. I also discovered a whole additional file on Carlos Marcello that the committee never saw, which was some kind of accident or something. I discovered the existence of that file when the road to Dallas was almost ready to go to press. So I knew there was no way I could get my hands on it in time to use it in the book. I didn't pursue it for many years. A few years ago, I finally did pursue it. I got a copy with every name redacted, it was impossible. I looked into the possibility of filing a suit to try to spring it, talked to one of the leading FOIA attorneys about it. He indicated we would have to do so much work to try to get it sprung, it wouldn't be worth it. So that is the problem we're facing now, is that they won't release anything new or they'll only release it in a hopelessly redacted form. But as to whether there are any smoking guns in the material that's been reviewed, uh, no, I, I doubt that very much. Uh, unfortunately, there's a substantial community of researchers who will always claim, as long as there's one unreleased document, that that's the one that's finally going to prove that the CIA, FBI, Lyndon Johnson, and everybody else was behind it. Or, I'm exaggerating a little, but not that much. So that that's what I think about that. I don't think there's any smoking guns, but they do have like 600-something pages on David Atlee Phillips. I'd like to know a little bit more about. That guy was a character for sure. He certainly was, and there's a lot about him in my book too. Again, that's probably routine personnel stuff and things like that. Not, But yeah, I mean, he... Um, Actually, Dick Billings, who I mentioned, the Time Life reporter, was on the Biopoly raid. He knew Phillips. 
And he said in the mid-80s, Philip suddenly called him and invited him to lunch, and they had lunch. And the whole time, the conversation didn't really going anywhere, go anywhere. And Bill said, he was saying, why did he invite me? What's this about? And then just a few weeks later, Phillips died. So that was an interesting story, too. Yeah. Um, when it comes to understanding the mob angle, I mean, if you're going to talk to younger generations like myself who really don't have a context for the times where these mob figures were prominent, what would you say to them? Organized crime was very powerful. And in the 50s, people began to realize how powerful it was. First, because of the Kefauver investigation. Senator Estes Kefauver of Tennessee was a fascinating political figure. Nobody knows anything about him anymore. Uh, but uh, he was a very interesting guy. And, and he... He ran against Harry Truman for the Democratic nomination in 1952, partly on the strength of that investigation. And he beat Truman in New Hampshire. Uh, Truman pulled out of the race, and Kefauver came quite close to winning the Democratic nomination. He was kind of JFK before JFK. Um, and, 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 and he was very liberal, and he was even liberal on civil rights, although he's from Tennessee. But anyway, uh, and then uh, came the Appalachian conference in 1957 when a New York State trooper actually accidentally caught all the leading mob figures in the country practically meeting in the middle of nowhere in upstate New York. The Mafia Summit. That proved, that's right, that proved that there was a national crime syndicate, which of course, even your generation knows about, thanks to the Godfather. Um, yeah. Hoover had to acknowledge it then. That's right. Uh, and actually, that's another thing that I discovered. Uh, the mythology growing up that Hoover was never interested in the mob. It was only Robert Kennedy who got him going on the mob. Well, that wasn't true. He, he really got interested after Appalachian. And the FBI began to investigate some mob figures very thoroughly. But it, it was more haphazard. Uh, actually, one guy who was already very much a focus was John Connor. And they were already all over him. Um, but uh, so I think Hoover's official statement was that he believed it was a state's problem to deal with. Exactly. Um, yeah. Well, and Hoover actually. He bet at the tracks. Hoover, well, yes, but Hoover was a smart guy. Don't ever let anybody tell you anything different. Hoover apparently was very worried that if he tried to go after organized crime, agents would be corrupted. And guess what? He was right. He was right about so many things. We have seen that happen now, most notably in my own backyard here in Boston, uh, where Whitey Bulger in South Boston had a leading FBI agent in his pocket with huge consequences. So, uh, but, but they were beginning to go after them. Um, it was very hard to go after them. And eventually, uh, and Blakey was involved in this too, but it wasn't until 70s that, that they passed the RICO Act, uh, which uh, provided a legal framework to go after them, which had been very difficult to do because it was so hard to tie a mob boss to a specific crime. Yeah, but it, it was very powerful. It was very powerful in local politics in many parts of the country. That probably 
has changed. Uh, again, uh, they controlled all gambling. Now we have legalized gambling, so that's not such a big deal. Uh, they controlled uh, the sex trade, which I think is probably in a different phase now. Uh, a lot of their um, called the gray zone major gray enterprises zone. have gone have gone somewhere else. But of course, they also went have gone legit to some extent in casinos, and I don't know how much of that is still going on, but uh, there may be some. Well, Mr. Kaiser, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Um, is there a place where people can find your book and any other links you'd like to promote? My book, The Road to Dallas, is in several thousand libraries around the country. It's also still in print uh, if you want to buy it. Um, so that's what I would recommend. Also, uh, yes, on my YouTube channel, which I believe is YouTube slash David Kaiser, or it might be slash Kaiser D2, but I think it's David Kaiser. Um, there is the video of a conference I participated in 10 years ago um, in which I presented my findings. And also you'll see some uh, findings from the other side. And um, I've written about it some on my blog, historyunfolding.com. There was one post, it's quite old now, but it's called Writing About the Kennedy Assassination. And it situates what I did in the context of most of the controversy and talks about what I call the two faith-based faith-based approaches to the assassination. So those are several things. Let's go to the 60th. I'll stop by your house and drag you there if you want. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, thanks, Randy. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, Mr. Kaiser, thank you again for giving me the time. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for next episode.